last three times, you know, sleep a, a lot. And so Milan and I took that to heart, and we, uh, we, we gave above our tithe. And that very week, uh, my parents uh, gave us a, a, a $5,000 check towards, uh, towards uh, paying down uh, Milan's school. Come on. Come on. So, Come on. Let's go. So out of that, we're going to take our tithes and offerings. We're just going to pass this one this way, this one this way, and uh, Noah will get it in the back. Lord, we just pray over the offering, Lord, the tithes and the offering. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would multiply the seed that we sowed. God, we believe in faith, Lord, that you, uh, Lord, give back as we give, Father, even as Steve has given testimonies. Lord, as there's so many testimonies in this room of giving, Lord, and receiving. Father, we ask that this would be a season of giving and receiving astronomical amounts of money from you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, Bethany's going to take it over. We actually have one more testimony, but uh, where are you, Elizabeth? We'll do it at the end because I want us to be able to pray for people. Come on. Sure. Okay? I want us to be able to take time. Oh, I don't need these right now. Okay. So sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Good to see everyone. Um, today is actually going to be a little bit different, um, and I guess in a sense, I was going to say a little more personable, but I guess probably every time I share, it's probably pretty personal, because I'm just that kind of a person. I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve, but um, personal in the sense that we're actually going to go over the prophetic history of us as a ministry of J-Hot Boston. Um, but just so you guys have clarity, it's not necessarily so much that we're just telling a story of how we were established. Really what it is is a testimony of the hand of God, number one, how he destined, ordained, but really our testimony, I can say in a nutshell, is one of supernatural provision, supernatural sustaining, but also supernatural confirmation. Even as I was kind of just writing out some things, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm going to recap probably like a couple of years, but within that, there was a lot of like prophetic words, dreams, like even like I realized while I did it that during the course of these years, five cars were given to me. And I, I just realized there were certain things that I went, well, there's not really time for that. So there's a lot that was kind of weeded out, <laughs> um, but it's more kind of the very significant markers of what has defined us as a people. And yes, I'm going to highlight scripture, but this is what I just really want to encourage you, is that it's basically what I'm sharing, it's scripture put to life. It's the place of hearing the voice of God, obeying the voice of God, and seeing the hand of God. And so it's not so much just even reading the story of Elisha or the story of Noah. It's then us actually engaging with the God of the Bible. It's the God of the Bible in the here and now. So it moves beyond a story in, in a book that we think of as history to the place that the very history and story of our own life, that it's the God of the Bible. And there's two things that I really want us to focus on today is number one, this is really, um, it's a corporate testimony for us as a people so that we have clarity and understanding <coughs> of who we are and what God has called us. Cause really understanding our history also gives you understanding of where we're going and what we're building towards. But what I really want to encourage everyone here, like even if this isn't your home or that you're in no way committed to this community of people, I, really what I want you to be encouraged by is that 
this is not a, a specific thing to Bethany Temple of the way that God moved in my life. That each one of you, I don't care, maybe you're not called to full-time ministry, maybe you're not called to missions or to pastoring, or what, what we would think of in a sense of ministry, but the Lord's hand to lead, guide, direct, provide in the midst of your circumstance. He might call you to start a company or go to school, and you might look in the natural and there's no provision and no possibility of it. And this is where I want you to really hear the story of the past couple of years of what's taken place here and take it for yourself of saying that, number one, God wants to speak to me clearly. Number two, God wants to guide my footsteps. He wants to lead me. And that my life is not intended to be dull or boring. It's intended to be a great adventure of hearing the voice of God and responding appropriately. Um, so I want for, I just kind of don't want you to kind of go, well, I'm not, this isn't really my church or this isn't my, so it doesn't apply. It does apply because when you actually see the way that God speaks, the way he desires to speak, and also I was actually, I'm not going to share it, but I ended up stumbling upon some documents Lou gave us at our wedding and he wrote out this phenomenal, and for those of you that don't know, Lou is really a poet like the ability to articulate language and as I was reading it I just couldn't even believe it but he basically was saying that history is not an, a, a bunch of accounts that we read in the, in the past history basically we are here present day and present time and you need to find your name in the history book where is your name written regardless of what it looks like or the expression of it it's finding your name in history there's a very audacious quote that i think i used to be like that is so audacious i guess that's the only word there's a quote that actually says i'm not called to march in the parade of history i'm called to lead the parade of history mm -hmm. And there's many of you in this place that might be like, I don't think I'm called to lead the parade of history. Like, that's not really, but really, in our own right and in our own way, I mean, I'm going to be very honest with you. For those of you that know my mom, many of you have commented how you were really touched when she came and preached and that it changed your life. I can honestly tell you, my mom is definitely doing historical, phenomenal, amazing things with the ministry she's called to do. But I can remember as a child, it began with her looking at her own neighborhood and saying, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm going to start via VBS and get every kid saved. It, it was that place of looking, where am I today and now? Not waiting for the great stage and the multitudes and the millions, but saying, if I'm called to preach, I'm going to do it to the two or three children that are in my neighborhood. If I'm called to teach, I'm going to do it faithfully in Sunday school. If I feel like the Lord wants to entrust me with millions to finance the kingdom, I'm going to start with my $2. It's that place of faithfully stewarding. Whatever is in front of you right now. And really, as I share kind of the testimony, it's, it's really bizarre and crazy, some of the prophetic confirmation. But what I look at is I look back, and when you guys even hear some of the financial provision that's taken place, I can honestly say to you that in the years where I was working my butt off, where I was working really hard, when I would sit down to do my taxes with my dad, because he has a lot of financial wisdom, when we would sit down and kind of go over my year's earnings, my year's givings, my year's spendings, all of that, Every single year, my dad would look at me and go, you gave how much away? When all of the records and receipts would come in. And I can honestly say to you today that the journey of faith that I've been on with J-Hot Boston, it wasn't like just one day as a single young adult, I signed a lease for $3,900 and went, oops, I hope the Lord provides. I already had such a history of the Lord providing for me supernaturally. There was already such a history. Honestly, when J-Hot would get to the point where there was no money left in our bank account, 
but I knew that like if we literally received a thousand dollars, I was supposed to sew it into an adoption. I it, I never had to think if I sew this, will there be enough to pay rent? Because my personal history had already proven that the Lord was faithful. And so I think there was even a place where, where you've seen him prove himself on such a personal, intimate place. It's a lot easier to trust him. But for each one of us, I just want to challenge you. It's very easy to kind of think, well, in the future, I'll have the faith to do X, Y, Z. Or when I have this stability then I will preach. Or when I have this, it's almost easier to think that when all of my circumstances and the stars align, then it will happen. But what we all need to realize that is if we're not actually taking steps today, if you're not being faithful with the 50 that's in your hand, you'll never be faithful with the 500,000 that's in your hand. It really begins in that place. Um, so really, I'm just going to kind of tell the story and um, give you a couple of passages of scripture that have really spoken life to me. And um, I did actually bring some illustrations because I realized I was like, as I was going through my prophetic history, I realized like certain testimonies. I actually had articles or emails or things looking back of going 10 years ago. That was an email. It's just crazy to see the story that the Lord has woven. But for those of you that don't know me, I'll just say, um, and those of you that do know me know that my life was radically touched by the Lord when I was like 14 years old. It was a life-changing encounter. I never went back. I never, and I'm going to be honest, it was the kind of life-changing altercation that my very desires changed. I didn't have to like resist or um, work really hard to like stay free of certain things in the world. It was the Lord ruined my heart. My heart was completely ruined. So in my teenage years, I had a very different experience. Um, my teenage years, basically, I was raised in a Christian high school. Um, in, in the Christian high school, I was given oversight of Bible studies and able to teach Bible classes. And they gave me a lot of um, leadership opportunities to begin to teach and, and preach and those kind of things. Um, so I had a very different high school years than most people. But in that, my high school, because it was a Christian high school, I was able to devote a lot of time to studying Christian history and revival history. So like, although I did my math, I did my geometry, I did my chemistry, like I did it, the passion of my heart, they actually let me go after. Um, and I was able to give a lot of time to studying revival history. And I just want to say for any of you, not even revival history, but just understanding American history, but understanding it clearly from a Christian perspective, I highly recommend the book, The Light and the Glory. And I just want to say that book, I honestly believe that what I'm doing today and the passion of my heart for America, for revival, for prayer, all of those things, it actually, the seeds of it were sown when I was like 16 years old. I was in high school reading The Light and the Glory and reading the accounts from The Light and the Glory. Honestly, at 16, my heart was ruined with the dream of God's heart for New England. When I read the documents of history, of the covenants that were made, of men and women that would write out, like, God has called us to this land, and I'll actually read a couple of them for you. But reading them, I just began to think, God had a dream in his heart. There was a desire in his heart, and he put it in the heart of man. And I really, at that point, I think I already knew that my heart would be forever bound to New England. I did go other, to other states for school. Um, but I always knew like, that I wanted to come back to New England um, just because my heart had been really captured with a dream of what God had intended and ordained for this region. Um, actually, I'll read to you specifically Governor Winthrop. If you guys have anybody studied a model for Christian charity, when they were aboard the Arabella coming here, 
he actually basically, he was the first governor of Massachusetts, but he basically wrote out what it would be, what their community would look like. It's very long, and I, we don't really have the time today, but I'm going to highlight a few aspects to you, just so you have an understanding of the dream that God put in Governor Winthrop, John Winthrop's heart, for what Massachusetts would be. Now the, now, the only way to avoid this shipwreck and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain e each other in brotherly affection. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell amongst us and his own people, and we will command the blessing upon us in all of our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than we had formerly had been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is amongst us. When ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and a glory, that men should say of succeeding plantations, may the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be a city set upon a hill, and that the eyes of all nations will be upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword amongst the world. We shall open the mouths of the enemy to speak evil of the ways of God in all the professors of God, all those that profess God's sake. We shall, we shall shame the face of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good, the good land withering that we are going. And to shut this discourse with that exhortation of Moses, the faithful servant of the Lord in his last farewell to Israel, Deuteronomy 30, Beloved, there is now set before us life and death, good and evil, in that we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God and to love one another, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands and his ordinances and his laws and the articles of our covenant with him, that we may live and be multiplied and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land where, it's old English, it's whither, we go to possess. But if our heart shall turn away, so that we do not obey, but we, shall, but we shall seduce and worship other gods, our pleasure and profits, and serve them. It is propounded upon us this day that we shall surely perish out of a good land that we, that we go to possess over this vast sea. Therefore, let us choose life, that we and our seed may live by obeying his voice and cleaving to him and him alone. That's profound. The, the, the starting of a nation... And I won't get into it right now. I really, really love U.S. history. Really love U.S. history. But I won't get into it, but really America is the only other nation other than Israel that had been covenanted and set apart as to, to be unto the one true God. There is no other nation that has that godly heritage of being covenanted to worship the one true God and even being founded. And I understand there's a huge debate where the forefathers Masons and all of that. But you, there's the undeniable fact that when you read a document like this of declaring Micah and to do justly and walk humbly, of acknowledging that we need the mercy of God <coughs> and that's the only way that we will succeed. We will not succeed apart from him. Um, so this is like one of the documents that basically from an early, early age really began to grip my heart. Um, so really from 1996 to 1999, I, as an individual, aside from any corporate ministry, just really immersed my life in prayer and fasting. 
Um, I know for some of you, like there's certain things that just make you tick. From the earliest I can remember, I felt like if I do one thing with my life, I want to excel in the place of prayer, of being skillful in hearing and discerning the voice of God. That's, that's, if that's the one, I know it sounds kind of <laughs> simple, but that was kind of, and I really, as a young teenager, just spent hours upon hours. But it was in that place, um, it was in 1999, IHOP KC was actually founded. And so from a very, I don't even know how I stumbled upon it, but it was like kind of the on the scene came 24-7 prayer. No one had heard of it. Nobody had conceived it, thought of it, you know, any of those things. But 24-7 prayer comes on the scene in 1999. And it was during that time that actually I was reading this book. It's called The Lost Art of Intercession. And if I highly recommend this book, The Lost Art of Intercession. Um, but it was while I was reading this that I came upon the history of the Moravians. And for those of you that don't know the history of the Moravians, they were a small community in Herrenhut, Germany. How many of you have ever heard of Herrenhut, Germany? Awesome. Well, I'm going to read, I mean, there's a lot of history about them in here, but this is really what provoked my heart. It says the Moravians, over 100-year prayer vigil, so just so you guys understand, it was 100 years, they were a small community that sustained unbroken prayer 24-7 for 100 years. And when you really begin to look at their history, it was, a, it was like a group of um, young adults in their 20s and 30s, and it actually started with only a group of like 20 of them. And they would actually, two of them together, would pray one hour, and it would go in groups of two. But it says, the Moravians over a hundred-year prayer vigil and global mission exploits marks one of the purest moves of the, spirit, of the spirit in church history. It radically changed the expression of Christianity in their age. Many leaders today feel that virtually every great missionary ende endeavor of the 18th and 19th centuries, regardless of denominational affiliation, was in very real sense part of the fruit of the Moravians' sacrificial service and prophetic intercessory prayer. Their influence continues to be felt even today. The Lord is clearly planning to increase the, increase the influence once again. It goes on to talk about the Moravians, but basically I then began to really study the Moravians. And when you look at the history of the Moravians, it was prayer they were devoted to, but because of prayer, it launched them into such a missionary endeavor. For those of you that have been around for here for any time, I usually share the story about the Moravians that actually sold themselves into slavery. It was two young men full of promise, full of hope, had a bright future. But for the sake of 30 slaves that were upon an island, the, the slave master basically had declared that the gospel would not be preached on that island because he didn't want his slaves to hear about Jesus. So the only way for the gospel to reach that island was for these two young men to sell themselves into slavery. So no hope of the future, but they understood the inheritance that the lamb had in those individual lives. And as they set sail from that, that place, as mothers were crying out in anguish, as family members were crying out, why must you go? And, and the account actually says that you could hear heart-wrenching crying and screaming from the shore. And when they were basically were pleading with them because they were going off and they knew they would never be seen again, being sold to slavery. And as they were set sail, all you could hear coming from the ocean, these two young men, two young men was, Oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. Oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. That was their great life ambition, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering and that wherever that took them in life, whatever that called them to even be slavery, that they were willing to obey by life or by death. So the, the, the Moravians really just began to capture my heart 
Um, and I'll be honest with you, as I began to study world missions, for those of you, I don't know how acquainted you are with the missions movement in America or internationally, I began to be um, very painfully aware that in a large sense that missions endeavors were failing. That people would go places and see such limited fruit that missionary burnout was very, very high. That the going into places, going into even Muslim countries to preach Jesus, but the, the, the limited fruitfulness um, and then as I began to look at, and this was, I guess in 1999, I began to look at the Moravians and just began to think, what if missions took on a whole new face? That it wasn't so much you have the praying company in the house of prayer and the missions company out, you know, beating the streets trying to evangelize. But what if it was really born from the place of prayer, sustained from the place of prayer, so that it wasn't one or the other, but it's that place where the supernatural is released through missions and, and not, I won't get into all of it right now because I... I have a strong feelings, but we actually are seeing, this was in 1999, the Moravians really started um, striking my heart and people began to be a, a alerted to them. And now actually, today, we are seeing more and more prayer and missions, Mary, uh, which is extraordinary. So basically in 1999, the year 2000 was, for those of you that aren't familiar, um, the call DC is actually, took place in 2000. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar, the founder and the president of the call is a gentleman named Lou Engel, and he's also really um, the covering for our ministry here at J-Hop um, Boston and for Daryl and I. But basically what happened was, I was um, at a conference, and there was a gentleman that was preaching, and he brought up Lou Engel. Um, Lou Engel was not really internationally known at the, at the time, but he basically said, we're talking to a man and what would it look like to gather a million people on the Washington Mall at a Joel II solemn assembly to pray and fast and cry out for America? And so he basically, this was in 1999, like the fall of 99, and he said, you know, sometime like in the summer of 2000. Well, honestly, I was like 21, 22, 20, 22 at the time. I sat there, and when I heard this, I felt so violently, like not like, oh, that would be cool if it did happen, I really felt like for our generation of young people that if there was not some galvanizing moment of calling a generation to seek the Lord and repent on behalf of a nation, and really the way that I felt, it wasn't even so much about Lou Engel, although I think the Lord has really used him in this way, I had this burning passion in my heart, God must raise up a voice in America. There has to be a voice calling a nation back to God. Like that just began like to be like the passion of my heart. So it was actually the first time that I had done a 40-day fast on liquid. My mother was freaked out like this, this is going to kill you. Because nobody had at that point, we didn't know anybody that was fasting 40 days on liquid. Um, so I had done my first, and I'll be honest with you, my 40-day fast was my heart's desire before the Lord was raise up a voice to call our nation back to you. Raise up a voice that has the strength, the authority, the force, the conviction, the anointing, the prophetic utterance to pierce. I mean, I just for 40 days and for 40 nights was praying. And then somehow, I can't even get into all the details right now, um, I ended up having the opportunity to meet Lou. And the call was going to happen. And through meeting him, he was basically said, would you be willing to pray at the call with me? And I'm going to be very honest with you guys. Because he was mobilizing the nation to the call, um, I, at that point, thought, well, that was very kind and a very nice courtesy for him to ask me, like, maybe he's trying to be flattering, 
But I actually, he gave me his number and I just disregarded it. I was like, I'm going to go to the call and I'm going to pray with all the other masses of people. So it was actually probably like um, a month before the call <laughs> was taking place. And I got a voice a voicemail from Lou saying, you know, this is Lou. I want to talk to you about meeting me in D.C. before the call. We really want you to pray. And again, I kind of was like, he's been meeting young people because he'd been traveling the nation at that time to mobilize. I thought, oh, I don't want him to feel like I'm another young person that, like, kind of wants to pray at the call. Like, you know, what, what those groupy people. So I didn't call him back. <laughs> I just kind of, and then I think it was his second or his third call, my mother actually said, that's rude and disrespectful. <laughs> and I, so I called him and I said, hey, I said, I know you're probably meeting, you know, tons and tons of teenagers and young adults. I said, I really, you owe me nothing. You're not obligated to me. I really don't need to pray at the call. He was like, well, I'd like you to pray the Nazarite section, and I would like you to meet me the day before. So pretty much at that point, I was like, okay. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. This is kind of how I roll, is I refuse to push my way into anything that either God opens the door or I would rather not have it. It better be something that God has um, made a place for me, and it's my boundary and my border to step in because I'm not looking to overstep my boundary and border and what I'm called to do. So, and I will say that from working with the call all these years, I've seen plenty of people that know how to push their way <laughs> to get what they want and to get to be seen. Um, so at that, at the earliest stage, I just kept thinking if God is ordaining something for me to either work with him in some way, with, to work with Lou, it has to be God. And I have to know that it wasn't my doing. Um, so from the call, um, we actually did the call in D.C. That was in 2000. The following year, 2001, we did the call in New England. It was the call in New England. For those of you that don't know, there ended up being, I think, uh, 11 total calls. I mean, there's been many more since then. Um, but basically, uh, the call in New England, when that was then coming around in Boston, um, I'll say this to you. For me personally, I was then involved again um, with the Nazarite section, but also the role that I had was as the younger generation renewing the covenants of old as far as the, the founders of our nation, the forefathers of our nation, renewing their covenants to see revival and awakening. Um, and so this is actually really significant because the part that I was actually asked to lead was a segment of Jonathan Edwards, which for those of you that know revival history, like I said, in my teenage years, Jonathan Edwards was really, I, I love Finney, I love Whitfield, I love all of the revivalists, they're extraordinary men, but Edwards was really just who captured my heart in an extraordinary way. Um, and Jonathan Edwards wrote a document called A Humble Attempt, and I'll spare you the long details of it, but basically a humble attempt starts out by saying, in a humble attempt to promote the agreement and union of God's people throughout the world in extraordinary prayer for a revival of religion and the advancement of God's kingdom on the earth according to the scriptural promises and prophecies of the last day. Basically, Jonathan Edwards goes on to articulate that he felt like from Boston, from the New England region, there would be an extraordinary move of prayer that was going to birth the gospel to the nations of the earth. And it would fulfill last day prophecy, those of you that know in Zechariah, throughout Matthew, where it speaks that before the coming of Jesus Christ, that every tongue and every tribe and every people group will hear the gospel proclaimed. So Jonathan Edwards basically sets this vision out saying, let's do an experiment. Let's join together in extraordinary prayer, believing for the preaching of the gospel to go to the nations of the earth. And what you have to understand is like, here's Edwards, but like the entire history of New England, and this is kind of what we'll get more into, is 
Number one, it's been a land of awakening and revival. The revival history of the first and second great awakenings, the spiritual heritage that is here is not seen anywhere else, not only in the nation, but really even in the nations of the earth as far as the rich heritage of revival. But second to that, there is this rich heritage also. Massachusetts is the seedbed for foreign missions to the nations of the earth. We all know that America has sent missionaries to other countries, but actually in 1810 was when the first missionaries from Bradford, Massachusetts, for those of you that have been to my house, it's that town, from Bradford, Massachusetts, that those young missionaries were sent, those of you that have studied Adonai Judson, you go to Gordon, right? Adonai Judson, Anne Hazeltine, they were the first missionaries to go to Burma, India, from America. But the whole well for even missions and the preaching of the gospel to the nations is Massachusetts. And like this is all really part of what had begun to capture my heart was the understanding that number one, Massachusetts, the covenants of being covenanted to the Lord, number one, the history of revival and awakening, but also with that missionary sending. Um, so that was my role actually was kind of renewing the covenant of Jonathan Edwards that he had made. And I will say this, I prayed it that day at the call. But I think I had no way of understanding or even knowing that by praying that that day on September 22nd, 2001, that my heart actually, and I think in some ways my life, would then be bound to that life vision of seeing it come to pass. Not just praying it from a stage in front of 40,000 people, but then all of a sudden my very life almost somehow got enveloped in a, an extraordinary move of prayer from Boston that could actually bring the gospel to the nations of the earth, a missions movement that would be birthed from the place of prayer. So that was kind of, I, I'll be honest with you, I think the seedbed for what has been burning in our heart for J-Hot Boston. Um, so it was right after the call, um, just so for those of you that don't know, the whole purpose of the, most of the calls have very specific prayer mandates that um, the Lord has assigned us to. That call Yes, it was redigging the wells of revival um, in New England, but there was a huge emphasis on college campuses because, hello, we're surrounded by them. <laughs> so there was a huge emphasis on college campuses, and one of the things that Lou also was saying um, throughout the mobilization for that call is that no one is targeting false ideologies through massive prayer and fasting. And we can unpack that statement another day, but just to throw it out to you. <laughs> um, but it was from that time, it was probably like, um, so that was 2000, 2002. The town that I was living in was Groveland, Massachusetts. It's like 30 minutes north of here. But there was this old abandoned college. Abandoned, like meaning, like it was a campus, but there was nothing taking place on it. There was no classes, no activity, no nothing. And I don't even remember how all the circumstances took place. I just remember me and my mother prayer walking the campus. And I remember I then began to get some significant things from the Lord, but this is the extraordinary thing. So as we're prayer walking the campus, I say to my mom, I'm like, don't you think that there's some kind of history here about missions? Like there's some kind of a missional, we begin to research this campus, this, and I'll just refer to it as Bradford College. We begin to research it, and basically what we uncover is Anne Hazeltine, Adonai Judson, Anne Hazeltine, her father was basically on the board for this college, and she was a part of the college. It Way back in 1810 was an all-girls school. That's actually what it was. 
And from this all-girls school, basically the first missionaries in, in our U.S. history were sent from this physical location. In this town, actually, there's a, a marker where the first board for foreign missions was formed. So anyway, as I started researching this college campus, there was a, there was a mighty move of God that took place on this campus. And the way the students testified about it, they actually said that when you came onto campus, it was like stepping under the thunderings of Mount Sinai. That's the way that they, they testified. So they had this revival and awakening and missionary sending in 1810. So I just kind of began to go, why is it vacant? <laughs> why is there, like, this is actually the well for foreign missions in America. And everybody at that time surrounding the college had been praying for college campuses. And I'm like, it's an empty. So to be honest with you, I just started kind of going, Lord, what does this mean? And what is the purpose of this campus? So in preparing for this, I actually found the email I sent to Lou um, in 2002. And my words to him were, what if Bradford College, which what, that is the well for foreign missions to the nations of the earth, what if the Lord wants to raise it up again in our generation, but instead of missions being done in the way that we've known it and it's been familiar to us, what if it's the Moravian lampstand? What if it's the model of the raising up of night and day prayer, that through the place of night and day prayer, missionaries are sent to the nations of the earth? So I really just began to dream God's heart for this campus of, yes, there's a well of missions, but what if now it actually takes on the form so that it's not a failed system of prayer and missions, the Moravian model? So that was in 2002. I had um, sent him that. And I'll be honest with you, I had just began, like, me and my mother brought pastors, leaders, church leaders. I mean, we have pictures of us people giving people tours, being like, somebody needs to buy this, a church, a ministry. It really needs to be restored for its rightful purpose. But in the midst of that, we brought a bunch of intercessors. This is a crazy testimony here. This one older intercessor came to me, and she said, Bethany, you know, I just wanted to pray on the campus and kind of like hear what you're hearing from the Lord. She said, I brought my eight-year-old granddaughter there. She said, I just told her, I just said, we're just going to go have a picnic. Let's just go to have a picnic at this college campus. She said, I told her nothing of history or nothing that you feel from the Lord. She said, we stepped onto the college campus, and she said, my young granddaughter began trembling, like violently. And, and, she said, and she said, I knew she wasn't upset or disturbed. She said, but when I said to her, what is it, honey? What, why are you trembling like that? She went, Grandma, Grandma, I see missionaries, missionaries. God's going to send missionaries from this place. I mean, an eight-year-old little girl walking with her grandmother. And, and I'm sharing this with you because all along the way, there's just been these extraordinary ways of God just confirming what you're seeing is from me. What you're hearing is from me. And I will use an eight-year-old to confirm it. <laughs> so it was during that time, it was actually 2003, I had traveled to Pasadena, which is Pasadena, California is where Lou is from. Um, and in traveling to Pasadena, we were actually going to talk about like a house of prayer out there. He was actually kind of saying, why don't we all rally to Pasadena? Why don't you guys come to Pasadena? We'll start a house of prayer out here. And I'm literally there going, I'm called to New England. Like, I am so, there may be, might, might, might look like nothing's happening there right now, but I'm called to New England. Like, I know this as a matter of fact. So I tell him about this college campus, and the one that I've emailed him about, and I basically say, it's the Moravian lampstand. It's prayer and it's missions. God wants to raise it up, and he wants to do it in Massachusetts. He wants to redig this well of awakening, revival, and missionary sending. So basically, Lou and I go to step onto the auditorium where they're having their large conference. It's like a 5,000-seat auditorium. As soon as we step onto the campus, there's in, on top of the auditorium, there's a picture of a man 
And it says John Armott, and it says the evangelization of the world in one generation. Now, mind you, I've never heard of John Armott at this point. I'm like, I don't really intellectually register anything or even his name. I begin to so violently, profusely cry and tremble. And Lou actually started saying, do you know like the history of John Armott? And I'm like, who is it? You know, I'm, I'm crying, I'm manifesting in front of a bunch of people. And Lou just begins to say, this is a window to your destiny. He said, tears, and I want all of you to hear this, tears are a window to your destiny. That, that which moves the passion of your heart is a window to your destiny. And so as I'm weeping, Therese, those of you that know Lou's wife, God bless her, she literally goes, I have a disposable camera, let's take a picture. She's like, there's a, you know, and I'm like, yeah. but I actually, I brought this because this is how crazy it was. Here's, this is the auditorium. It says John Armand. Underneath it, it says the evangelization of the world in one generation. This is John Armand's face. This is me, if you look at this closely, a complete and total wreck. And Lou laughing. Lou, Lou thought it was great. <laughs> but he actually, him and Therese gave, and this is just another initiative that we had started years ago. But he, they had given to me this as one of my wedding gifts, um, some of the pictures from some of the stuff we've done. And this is actually what they wrote. They said, Dearest Bethany, you have brought great joy to Therese and I. We have felt so honored and loved by you. The first time we met in New Hampshire, our hearts were joined. Thank you, Lord. You are truly the embodiment of a Nazarite lover of God. We believe in the great dream of your heart that New England would turn to God and the student volunteer missions movement will be birthed from the womb of your prayers. Thank you for multiplying the dreams of this father and mother. May God give you that which you have poured your lives out for. May your children be like the stars of the sky. With great love and affection, Lou and Therese. Um, I read that to you because as far as him saying, as far as him believing that New England would be turned to the Lord in a great student volunteer missions movement. So this encounter, you guys have heard all about my crazy prophetic history at Bradford College, feeling like the Lord's going to do something. I go here, have crazy manifestation. Who is John Armand and why am I freaking out when I see his face? <laughs> so I come home. I'm only home for a week. And I'm sitting in a coffee shop. Uh, it's actually a coffee shop right down the street from where I live now. But I'm sitting in a coffee shop, and I have a history book of Bradford College because I'm kind of on this big journey. And my friend has a history book of Bradford College in front of her. As I'm reading mine, I see her book, and I see that she, while she's reading, I can see the name in the Bradford College history book. I see the name John Armott. And I mean, because I just had this crazy encounter in California, I'm like, John Armott, and she literally, because this was like after the whole Toronto airport blessing, I don't know how many of you guys know about that, but anyway, she goes, John Armott, you know, because he was out of Canada, and I'm like, no, John Armott, she goes, who's he, and I'm like, I don't know, so I pull the history book, and it, sure enough, it's John Armott, the same John Armott that was in California, so I start to read it, and this is what it says, so in 1910, I tell you guys the story of the first student volunteer missions that are launched from that campus. A hundred years later, in, in 1910, so you have 1810, the first missionaries, 1910, John Armott from California. Basically, he gets a dream in his spirit for another student volunteer missions movement. As he researches the history of the student volunteer missions movement, everything points right back to Bradford, Massachusetts. So this guy, in all of his wisdom of understanding God-ordained order, he makes his journey to Bradford, Massachusetts. 
1910, he comes to Bradford, Massachusetts, and when you read, I have the documents if you guys ever want to read them, when you read it, he, and there's a monument there now, there's actually a huge stone and it says this is where John Armott, when he stood there, he, this is literally what he said, he said a hundred years ago, the students of that day, they had visions and dreams of the evangelization of the world. They had dreams that were not realized in their generation. But he said the charge to our generation now, a hundred years ago, is to take up their visions and dreams and now live to see those fulfilled in our day and in our time. And it was in 1910 that he launched the next student volunteer missions movement. And for those of you that have ever studied the volunteer missions movement, he's really the father, the visionary, um, who ordained it. And so now I'm sitting there kind of going, what is going on? Like, not only does the Lord really speak to me about this campus, but then I have this crazy, bizarre manifestation confirmation surrounding John Armott without ever knowing who he is, and he's completely linked to this campus. And now I find out that 100 years later, there was another student volunteer missions movement in 1910. Um, so then you fast forward. I mean, all of those things are just crazy and bizarre. So I'm in Redding, California, for those of you that know Bethel. Uh, the church there, a friend of mine had paid for me to go out for a couple of weeks for a trip. I'm in Redding, California, 2004, after all this takes place, after the Lord speaks all of this about prayer and missions. I'm standing there, this crazy prophet guy that they have on staff with them comes walking up to me, and I mean, just straight up, like nothing like, I'm going to pray in tongues, get a word of knowledge, let me try to work something up. He literally walks up to me and he goes, you have eyes for the nations of the earth. He said, your eyes burn for the nations of the earth. And he said, and where you stand is the crossroads for revival to the nations of the earth. And he said, have you ever heard of a place called Bradford College? <laughs> <laughs> I prayer walk in every day. I just was like, yeah. You know, I'm like looking at him like, why do you know? You know? So he says, Bradford College. He said, it's the crossroads for, once again, missionaries, for the gospel to be preached wow. to the nations. Now, this is the crazy thing. This word got, it was a long word. It was all about the East Coast fire. You know, it was one of those very long words, but it got recorded. Um, and thank God it did, because I missed this little phrase that he said. And it wasn't until a year later when I went back to listen to it that I found it. Um, but he said in the midst of this whole issue of um, Bradford College, he said, as you see Revival and Awakening on the campuses of Boston, it will be the catalyst for the next student volunteer missions movement for students to go to the nations of the earth. So he says this. I don't hear it because, to be honest with you, have no Boston's not on my radar. I go there to fly. Like, I, I go to the airport in Boston at that time. I, I wasn't living here. I had no ties here. Um, so he gives me that word. And then it was actually, it was the next year Lou asked me to fly to D.C., and he said, why don't you come out and let's discuss starting a J-Hop in Boston. They had started the J-Hop in D.C. To be honest, once again, about two or three times, I was like, I have a good job. I'm doing pretty well. I don't think I want to leave a house of prayer. <laughs> and, I mean, honestly, I several times, to be very honest with you, said to him, I don't know what's going to come of it, but I'm on this prophetic pursuit of this Bradford College. He knew everything that happened with John Armott, the confirmation of that. And I also told him about the word in Redding, California. And, um... So in the midst of this, the third time, he was like, well, I really feel like it's the Lord to launch the House of Prayer in Boston, and I, I won't do it without you, moving in covenant relationship. So finally, I really felt strongly from the Lord that I should go back to the word from California. I was like, that was such an instrumental word, and it was such confirmation to me. I'll just go back to it. So as I'm re 
mulling over the word, it was the first time I actually heard, as you see, Revival and Awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it will be the catalyst for the student vol. So I all of a sudden kind of went, Boston? Oh my goodness. So maybe there's a part where this is working hand in hand together. Like I'm so fixated on this campus. Um, so I actually called him and I said, there might be something to this. There might be some connection and maybe the Lord is doing something. Um, so it was at that time, um, let me just see if there's any other. Yeah, so it was basically the end of 2005. We started discussing our plans for J-Hop. Um, and I mean, this is how we moves. He's fast. It was, that was December. I was there. Um, in January, he's like, let's, let's say go. Let's say March 1st, we're doing 40 days. They brought their entire team, like 75 of them here. Just so you guys have a grid for this, my life was so immersed in what I was doing 30 minutes north of here. I'd never even been to Central Square. Like, never been to Harvard. Ne uh, mm, mm. Like, I just <laughs> did not know how to get there. Like, oh my. So, anyway, he says go. He's like, rent a facility. We need to house 75 people, which anybody that's from here logistically, that's like crazy in Cambridge. It just does not happen. So this is how funny it is. So this is kind of where our whirlwind of here we are today starts. It was in 2006. I literally, instead of taking the Harvard um, Square exit off of Sturo, I took the Central Square, uh, Central Square exit, and I ended up driving down um, right into Central Square, and I came to the First Baptist Church. And honestly, it was the first place I saw, and I was like, that's a nice place, Lord. <laughs> I was like, I like the brick. It looks like it's on the T. I'm like, I know Harvard's that way. MIT's that way. I literally just said, if I could pick a joint, I'd like that one. That was just my, you know, call the place. They were like, forget it. Is this a joke? You want to rent our, we wanted to rent, a, just so you have a context for this, we wanted to rent a facility for 40 days and 40 nights. We wanted 24-7 access. We wanted to sleep 75 people there. We wanted to feed 75 people there. We wanted to shower there. We wanted to pray there. And then at night, we wanted to open the meetings for like 200 people. So like every church I called was like, you want what? You want what? Who are you? You can pray and fast for 40, what? You know, it was just like, what is the deal? So after calling, because they shut me down, after calling every single, I mean, when I say every single, I mean every single facility, like within, I would say, at least a six-mile radius. Nothing was opening, so it was like a week before I called him. I'm like, so when do we pull the plug on this deal? <laughs> at what point do we say we don't have a facility? Because I'm getting, like, emails for college students that are flying in during their spring break. And I got no facility! <laughs> and, I mean, I... <laughs> just a total joke. It was just like... So I'm, I'll just make the long story short. I got the first Baptist. <laughs> My place where I said if I could have any place, I would. Um, we ended up landing the first Baptist church. We housed our people there. It, the whole thing was crazy. 40 days, 40 nights. And actually, Will, Will was there. <laughs> Noah was there. My husband led worship for... 40 nights straight. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Um, so anyway, <laughs> that's kind of, okay, so March 1st through April 9th of 2006 is actually when we started the 40 days and 40 nights. And this is kind of where kind of all of you guys begin, because now this was the journey of now actually building the house of prayer. Um, so during that time, um, somebody actually had a very significant dream. A gentleman, his name is Chris Berglund. He's a very good friend of Lou's. But um, I'll just say this. I basically was there for 40 days and 40 nights because it was such a whirlwind. I quit my job, mind the way. I gave a two-month notice when I met with Lou 
Um, well, the first time I met with them was in October, but when we actually decided to move forward with it, um, it, by the end of October, I told them that by January, no, 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 we marched, well, okay, I gave more than a two-month notice, because we marched, I told them I could work until February. So I gave my notice, did my whole deal, had no idea where my money was going to come from. I'm like, I'm starting a ministry and I got no income. Cool. That's really cool. Um, and it was so overnight. It's not like I support raised or fundraised or sent out a really flashy newsletter. Didn't do any of that. Uh, so March 1st, we're going to launch. Um, and I'll be very honest. I was in the midst of this 40 days and 40 nights kind of going, where am I going to live? when this is over? What's, what's, what's happening here? Am I relocating here? Like, it still was kind of like, and what is a house of prayer exactly? <laughs> it was just such a whirlwind. Um, and my heart was still burning for this issue of prayer and missions. And now I'm looking at college students, kind of going, I'm not quite sure how you fit in my equation. <laughs> I'm called the prayer and missions. I want to see a Moravian lampstand. What do you want to see? <laughs> So in the midst of that, this man had a dream, and it was probably one of the most profound dreams um, that has really spoken to my heart. Basically what he saw was he saw masses of young people, and he said that the masses of young people actually had welts on the temples of their head. And he said when he saw these welts on their head, he asked the Lord in the dream, he said, what are the welts on the temples of their head? And the, the Lord responded to him in the dream, and he said, it's poison ivy on the mind of a generation. Wow. And he said, the Ivy League universities have been used to poison the mind of a generation. He said, but I'm bringing forth light and glory. The leaves of healing will bring light and glory and be the healing of the nations. So anyway, the, oh, he said the Ivy Leagues will become the leaves of healing for the nations. So basically, what has actually, and this is kind of goes back to, and I know it's kind of a blur for some of you. You're like, what's going on right now? But when I, when I had mentioned about false ideologies, when Lou in 2001 had said nobody is targeting false ideologies through prayer and fasting, it's that place of the Ivy Leagues because of the godless philosophies, because there has been such a divorcing of the understanding of who God is. And, I, and I'll say this statement. Some of you might think it's too bold. It's very anti-Christ. It's not just neutral. It's opposed. It is opposed to the biblical authority and truth of Jesus Christ. So with that, it has poisoned the mind of a generation because you, you are open up to every possibility under the sun, and there is no absolutes when Jesus Christ is not the cornerstone. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, I strongly encourage you, I have a lot of the material, to study actually the history of Harvard and what it was intended to be. It was actually called the School of the Prophets when it was first ordained. I mean, I would love to do with anybody that would like to, um, even just a tour of the campus, in stone, there's scripture declaring truth, the original seal of Harvard. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys know the seal today, but what the seal was, and it really speaks, the seal itself really spoke to that there's knowledge that's accessible and available to man, and there was a book that was turned over, there's knowledge that is only revealed by the Spirit of God. That's what the seal originally meant, but then they flipped the third seal. And when they flipped it, it was with the rise of humanism. And with the flip of the seal, they basically declared that all truth is accessible to man. It, there was no longer the acknowledgement of God. On the philosophy building is written, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Out of Psalm 8, the greatest declaration of worship. There's an extraordinary, I mean, all of these are extraordinary stories that the Lord has just um, used to really confirm that it's not like we have a dream or a desire for New England or we have a dream or a desire for Harvard or the universities. It was God's intended purpose. So therefore, he holds the title deed. 
So therefore, we're just moving in partnership and agreement with his heart. Um, so th that dream was hugely speaking to me because just realizing that basically what the Lord was saying was he wanted to use the Ivy Leagues, uh, leaves, uh, sorry, Ivy Leagues as the leaves of healing to the nations of the earth to bring light and glory. And I began to have the promise of hope that light and glory is coming from the Ivy League. That, that is what the Lord wants to do. Um, so basically, fast forward, we finished the 40 days down here, and Lou and his awesome team leave town. Bye-bye. There they go. Here we are. Got to figure out what to do now. <laughs> so there goes our journey. Basically, I started with three people. And a girl at the 40 days, she was a Harvard student, came up to me. She said, I'm all done with school here, but I felt like the Lord said that I was supposed to keep my one-bedroom apartment, and you guys can just basically sublet it from me. And I went, Shaba, give me your apartment. <laughs> so basically, four of us lived there. The guy was out in the living room. The girls were, three of, three of the girls, we all slept in a, a little, you know, whatever, bedroom. I, we had, you know air mattresses, all of that. And basically all we did is we prayer walked and just sought the Lord. We were just like, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do now? Long story short, we ended up moving into a house right, right down the street, 62 Canard. And for those of you, just to be clear, I still had no idea where my personal support was, how I was financing a ministry and how I was going to get a facility and what I was going to do. But the Lord ended up opening up the, an opportunity. I don't even know how I got approved because the rent was $3,900 a month. Um, and I had no provable income because I had no job. So somehow, they let me rent it. That was so cool and so nice of them. <laughs> so for 39, signed my little name there. Here I am, single Bethany Yo at the time. Um, and my team pretty much saying, how are we paying for this? And me, not sure. Just not sure. Go pray. <laughs> and honestly, what I can say is we're there for a year. For the entire year, I still... Not so sure how I paid $3,900 a month. I, I'm not so sure. I mean, I would get like a check in the mail from, and if I said their names, you guys would all know them and recognize their names because they're national figures. Um, but like a random $5,000 check from this ministry and be like, awesome, I can pay rent. You know, but honestly, I had no means, no way. I just simply said, the Lord has spoken to me. He has called me here, so I'm going to obey. Um, basically, this is like the irony of like our lives during this time. We're all living in a house. There was some transition that was taking place. There was a couple that was living there that actually they, and mind you, I had no furniture. I was a single girl. Like I had a room at my parents, right? So they had furnished like the whole house with their stuff. Well, there was some transition taking place with school and jobs and things like that. So they were moving out of the house. And when they were moving out of the house, they were taking all of their furniture. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have a pot to boil water in. <laughs> I was kind of like, okay, I'm not exactly sure how this works. But in the midst of all of this, um, a prophetic friend that knew nothing had called me. And she literally said, on November 15th, it's, it's a transitional point for the ministry. The Lord's bringing you guys into a new season. And I kept thinking, what's November 15th? What's November 15th? And then this couple ended up coming to me and saying, we're moving out November 15th. And I'm like, awesome, awesome. So I definitely knew that like the Lord was doing something and that it was all, let me just say this, a humongous house, four bedroom, three bath. We're talking massive living room. I mean, actually larger than this house. This house was vacant in a day, no furniture. And I mean, I hold prayer meetings there, stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, Jesus. And all I can say to you is in one day, my entire house was furnished. Wow. When I say furnished, I mean furnished nice, like really nice to the point that when other pastors from the community would come over, they'd be like, is that a pottery barn rug? 
And I'm like, yeah, someone gave it to me. <laughs> it was like, it, it looked amazing. It was absolutely gorgeous. And honestly, people from other ministries would come over and go, and how do you young adults pay the rent here? <laughs> Not so sure. <laughs> I mean, how do you answer that? Who's your support base? I don't have one. <laughs> how did you guys fundraise? I didn't. <laughs> the Lord said go. I went. I trusted He's provided. Here I am. He's established me. I mean, there's no other explanation. So, basically, let me fast forward because it's probably really late. What time is it, folks? What time is it? Oh, we got to wrap up. Okay, let's fast forward really fast. So, I shared with you guys uh, the Moravians out of here in Germany. During this first year, this formative year of our ministry, somebody pays my way to go to Europe for three weeks. Well, while I'm in Europe for three weeks, I get to go to Hut. Of all places, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I mean, he definitely provided. And actually, if you look at these pictures, um, this is the watchtower of the Moravians. This is actually where they prayed night and day for the 100 years. Um, I got to walk, like, where the community lived. I'm going to just say this to you. For me, it was the kiss of God that in the very first year of establishing the ministry that I felt like the Lord wanted to raise up a Moravian lampstand that he actually sent me to the physical location to walk the grounds, to pray, to look at history, just to confirm to my heart, this is what I'm going to do. And I am going to raise this up. So anyway, for three, for three weeks, I was able to spend time there. Um, and in the midst of this, I'll just bring this back to the, um, that college really quickly. As I'm living in that house the first year, I have a dream. And in my dream, this is in my dream, um, so those of you that know, the campus was still vacant all of these years. It was like a total of seven years. The campus was vacant, but there were several times they were going to like auction it or they were going to knock down the original buildings and make condos. Like all this crazy stuff was happening. Well, I have a dream. And in my dream, I actually have a group of young adults that are coming to J-Hop to be a part of the ministry. And they're like our first group of interns. And in my dream, the Lord tells me, that um, it's very important that as part of their um, orientation that I actually bring them to Bradford College and give them real understanding as far as the history of revival, the history of missions, and what we feel like the Lord is ultimately going to do so they have the greater context and vision. So in my dream, I bring the group of young adults to Bradford College, the place that I've been prayer walking. And when we arrive there, it's actually um, opening day for a Christian college. There's a Christian college there. And, I, and all the young adults in the dream were kind of like, what's going on? I thought this was going to be a missions base. I thought this was going to be, and I looked at all of them with such confidence, and I said, the Lord has entrusted it to them for this season. I said, he's given it to this Christian college so that they can steward it and so that it can be preserved until the fullness of time. I said, but there is coming another Moravian lampstand, and there is coming another missions movement from this place. Um, so fast forward, I go to Kansas City to meet with Lou and some leaders out there, and they all know my crazy fascination with the campus and feeling like there's prayer and missions, and they, they all know what's going on, so at the end of the meeting, they're like, does anybody have anything to pray for? And I just say to them, I said, um, next week, the campus is being auctioned. They're like auctioning it building by building. They were going to subdivide the entire campus. So I just said, you know, I really feel like the Lord has spoken to me about this place. And I said, I really believe my dream that a Christian college is going to steward it until the fulfillment of time. So share with all of them. They all pray. Three people have a word. And one woman says, Bethany, I feel like a large sum of money 
is going to be released. And I feel like your dream of a Christian college that's going to steward it so it can be preserved is going to happen. The following week, I get a text message that the, the campus does not go for auction. Instead, one donor gave a Christian Bible college the entire sum of money to purchase it, and they now are there. They're so I happened to be preaching at something, I don't even remember what I was preaching at, and a board member from this Christian college that now is on the campus comes to me um, and basically says, well, I'm at, you know, I'm at that college, and I, you know, we're a Christian college and we're there. She's like, I just don't get it. She said, and this is what she said. She said, because our calling as a Bible college, our whole vision is missions. And she said, it's actually mandatory that people, whatever they want to major in, but they, they have to minor in world missions. And she's like, but Bradford was a liberal arts college. And I went, not so much. <laughs> I said it was like in, in, in the, you know, the whatever, 1980s. Um, I'm like, but if you go back to the 1800s. And so I actually gave her, and I said, wow. you are sitting on the well for world missions. I mean, so anyway, I can't get into all the intricacies of that component there. Um, but pretty much as far as the way that the Lord spoke and how he confirmed and what's actually taking place now. Um, so let's just move forward. We have, we have to move out of that house on, on 62 Canard. At that point, I'm going to be honest with you. The Lord provided $3,900 a month, but I didn't really like all of that responsibility being on me. I mean, I was a single young adult just trying to, honestly, just wanting to pray. Like, I just wanted to pray for a city. I didn't even have a vision to do, like, night and day. I just wanted to pray. Just give me a group of intercessors. We just want to see breakthrough for a city. So I, I'm going to be very honest with you. I decided at that point that I was just going to downsize, and I was going to rent, like, a two-bedroom apartment for my team. I was like, we're just going to go real low, real small. We might just get part-time jobs. I was just like, this is a lot. Like, this is a, but I just kept saying to the Lord, God, whatever is your desire. Um, so this house that we're in right now, for that whole year, it had been being gutted and renovated. It was awful. If anybody ever saw this house before, uh, it looked <laughs> 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 like whispers or he won't hear me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, is the guy that lives in that house in my house right now? No, he's not here. Okay. <laughs> it looked like that one. So they gutted and renovated it. So long story short, this is crazy. Throughout the whole year that I'm there, my realtor knows that I have to leave that house because the landlord wanted to live there. Um, so he knows that I have to leave. So during that year, he keeps calling me saying, I have the perfect property. You can have your prayer room. You can have interns live upstairs. He's, he's, like, he's going over and over. And all year long, I'm getting his voicemails going, I don't want a big property. It's too expensive. You know, I'm just like, it's a lot on me. <laughs> so I'm just kind of like, unless the Lord does something. Well, in the meantime, my landlord is a realtor. And she says, I have the perfect property. So, like, everybody keeps coming to me about the perfect property. Um, so I'm actually, I'm on the internet one day at a coffee shop, and I come across a two-bedroom, a two-bedroom, and it actually was the picture of this side of the house here. And I was like, oh, that really pretty little place. It's the small place on Western Avenue. I'm going to call. I call. It's my old realtor. <laughs> call the number. I'm like, I found a cute two-bedroom. You want to show it to me? So he's like, well, what's the address? He said, I've been calling you, he said, about a property. And I was like, I know. I'm like, you kept saying how big it was, and you told me it was 4500 a month. And I was like, I just, I can't. I was like, I don't feel like I have the grace or the capacity to do that right now. So long story short, I tell him the listing that I'm calling about. And he goes, Bethany, that's the property I've been calling you about for the past. And I was like, no, this is two-bedroom. He goes, well, the first floor is a two-bedroom. He's like, the second floor is a four-bedroom. 
And so he kind of goes through the whole thing. So when I tell my landlord, I'm like, I'm going to look at that house on Western Ave, the one that they've been renovating. She's like, this is the one I've been calling you about. <laughs> I'm like, oh. So anyway, I come in. It's not, it's not even finished yet. It's like completely like not finished. It was still being renovated. So in the process of it, I actually, oh, sorry. So all this happened. And then I went, I was in Germany after I was praying about all of this. And the Lord spoke to me some things in Germany, but to make a long story short, there's one individual that prior to this had not been funding us, had not been funding me. She knew about me. I liked her. She liked me. But there was no funding happening. So she calls me and basically says, what's going on for next year? And I'm like, I think we're going to downsize. I think we're going to go to a two-bedroom. What do you mean a two-bedroom? She's like, what do you feel like the Lord's saying? I'm like, well, I'm looking at this house. <laughs> it was this one. Long story short, I tell her about the house. She said, do you feel like it's the Lord? And I said, it scares me to death, but I do. I said, but $4,500 a month? <laughs> I'm like, here I go again, you know? And this is what she said to me. Because I needed, just so you guys have context for like a house like this, because you have to do first, last, security, realtor, I needed $14,000 up front. So she says to me, I'll give you the $14,000. And she said, I'll guarantee the monthly rent every month for you for the first year. Wow. wow. Really? <laughs> I mean, at that point, it's like a no-brainer. So literally, all of it was paid up front, and the, the whole entire year of rent was paid for here as well. I know, crazy, right? <laughs> totally crazy. I need to really fast forward so we can wrap up. Um, let me see what is the most critical so that you guys... So, it, so we're in the house. This is one last crazy story, and then we're going to... We're in this house, and basically all this story that I told you guys about Bradford, John R. Mott, Student Volunteer Missions, Revival, campuses... I'm sitting, actually, there was a futon right here, and I'm, in the morning I used to do from 6 a.m. to noon. And basically, by the end of the time, I actually was sitting there, and I, I, I said to, this is what I said to the Lord. I'm like, I really, really want, I wanted this book really bad. It was the John Armott, this is John Armott, he wrote this. It's called The Evangelization of the World in One Generation. I really wanted it, but obviously my funds were very tight. <laughs> um, so I wanted it so bad I was about to order it on um, eBay, because they were out of print. So I was like, wow, this is a sacrifice, but I really felt strongly, instead of ordering it for myself, I should order it for a friend of mine that had been really tracking with me prophetically. Um, so painfully in my heart, <laughs> I was like, okay, God, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get this for myself. I'm going to order this for my friend. And at, with tears pouring down my face, I just said, God, if all of this is really you, if you've really spoken this clearly about John Armott, about what you're going to raise up out of Boston, I'm like... Would you provide a book for me? I'm like, could you just somehow, because I can't afford to, I'm going to sow this as seed, and would you provide a book about the student volunteer missions for me, Lord? So I leave my little couch. <laughs> I ordered it for a friend. I leave the couch, and I go to check our P.O. box. And when I go to check our P.O. box, Lou and Therese had sent me a package that day. And this is the actually... A much, I will say a much better book <laughs> than the book that I was sewing into someone. <laughs> but this actually in the mail that day when I asked the Lord to confirm if it was really his doing. And it's called Stu um, Students in the Modern Missionary Crusade. And it's like all the accounts and Lou and Therese had wrote in Dear Bethany, um, I believe that you will be used to dig the wells of John Armont. May the Ivy League schools of New England be the, the leaves of healing to the nations of the earth. Our love and our prayers are with you always, Lou and Therese. So, I mean, when you constantly have, I mean, let's just be honest. Things like that, don't, you don't just say to the Lord, confirm to my heart 
and, and would you provide a book for me? And then you go to the P.O. box and then you have your, <laughs> voila, your book. <laughs> I mean, the, I could go on for days and days with crazy, crazy testimonies of the way that the Lord has confirmed as far as the vision and what he's spoken to our hearts of what he's going to bring forth out of Boston and this region. Um, it, like I said, it, it would be days. But really, in a nutshell, just to say, he has spoken so clearly and confirmed so profoundly um, that even, I mean, most of you don't know, up until that time, my husband was working like 80 hours a week um, when we got married. And then he would come in here and to be honest, sometimes he would go two and three days without sleeping because of his work schedule. He would come in here and lead a prayer set. You know, I was pregnant with Abram, ridiculously sick. Let me just say that. I puked for nine months. Um, but my husband, and I would just continually say to him, honey, I don't think we can do this. Like, I can't lead the ministry anymore. You're working your butt off. And then you're going and you're, and he was, and this is what my, this is my husband, this is how amazing he is. He was like, Bethany, even if we just have to do this for five more years, <laughs> to just build the ministry to a place of being sustainable, and then maybe the Lord will open a door. But I mean, he would just work tirelessly and then come in, and, and as you know, when he leads, he pours out his heart. So we were actually October of 2011, October, uh, was it 2011? Um, yeah, 2000, no, I'm sorry, October of 2010, um, we were ordained. And I'm just going to tell you the truth. I mean, the, our ordination was crazy. There was a lot of stuff that happened. But in my heart of hearts, nobody knew this, not even my husband. I just kept saying, God, I trust you that you, you have the very best for us. And if you give us grace to continue to do this. But my heart before the Lord is I just kept saying, I can't do this alone, and with my husband working as hard as he is and as long as he is, we really aren't, can't get this ministry what it needs. If you don't do something, I think I'm out. Like, it just was the reality of going, I have a newborn, and this doesn't work. This just does not work. So the ordination happened that weekend, and then we sat with a group of people, and basically these people just looked at my husband and said, you have to be full-time, and we will pay you to be full-time. And so that weekend, um, Daryl was provided for to be full-time. Um, yeah, crazy. It's just <laughs> crazy. Um, so anyway, that was um, our ordination. Oh, was that? I'm just trying to, oh, we were, I'm sorry, we were ordained in 2009 because Abram was born in May. We were ordained in October. Daryl was fully funded. And then, I can't get into all of it, but last year, for those of you that know, we had actually another 40 days. It was actually at the same like time as the March 1st through April 9th that the first 40 days took place. Um, and Casey, I have, Casey had come out. And I'll just say this, that the public prayer meetings that we now have, they actually just started right after IHOP was here. Because up until that point, when I said to you guys I was really just gathering a group of intercessors and we were praying and seeking the Lord, we really, on our website, there was no address. Um, there was no public prayer meetings. And all, honestly, the only people that were coming to them is people that would call and say, I found out about you guys, can I come? And we'd say, well, how'd you find out about us? <laughs> and where and what? And basically, through relationship, they would come. But it was after that point that we actually put the schedule on the website and that we've actually been now building a praying community in a public sense. Um, but just to say, we're actually like now in a whole new season. I'm going out to Kansas City next week, and part of what we're working on next week is finalizing our plans now for a second house um, so that we can actually start an internship um, and make this a base for training and sending, to actually do the beginnings of the beginnings of training young adults in the house of prayer 
so that we can actually send missionaries and, and take the beginning steps of moving forward. Um, but this is what I want to say. Hebrews 11.11, it actually talks about Sarah and how she conceived. And we all know the story of how she laughed at God because for her to have a son and all of that. But what it says about Sarah is it said she had strength to conceive because she judged him as faithful. <laughs> and sometimes, I'm just going to be honest, you don't have to know how it's all going to work out. I mean, it, there's, there's a place where we almost get into rationalizing and reasoning and how and what. Honestly, everything I shared with you, to be honest, doesn't it all sound pretty foolish? Like I had no way of knowing any of it or figuring any of it out. And honestly, let's just be honest. When I'm standing there manifesting, looking at John Armand, in your natural mind, I don't know who he is. I don't know that he's connected to Brad. I mean, that's the mystery of God is orchestrating and doing something far beyond my finite mind can understand. But that's the place that all of us have an invitation that we judge him as faithful. Even if we don't know how he's going to do it. Even if none of it makes sense, even if none of the pieces seem to calculate or add up, we judge him as faithful. And that he who has spoken will perform it. Regardless of our present circumstance, he will perform it. And so what I want to speak to those of you that are here today is I don't know how, but a humble attempt by Jonathan Edwards that the Lord is going to raise up an extraordinary move of prayer out of Boston that's going to bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. I may not get it down to a science of how, but I can tell you with confidence and that I've been so emboldened by the way the Lord has spoken and confirmed, it is going to happen. It will take place. That we will see Boston and New England will once again be the hotbed of revival and awakening that it was intended to be, that it was ordained to be, that it even was birthed as through Governor Winthrop. In the middle of all of this story, the prophet from Reading ended up on my doorstep here one day. <laughs> and I, he doesn't know. He just basically said, we heard of J-Hop Boston and what the Lord's doing. And, and as he said, I'm from Reading. And I looked around and I said, you prophesied over me. That's actually why I'm here. <laughs> but long story short, he starts to prophesy again, and he says, you have the mantle of Governor Winthrop. He doesn't know that my whole life's calling has gone back to a humble attempt. It was what John Winthrop ordained for New England, that that's what I'm burning to see come to pass. I mean, the, the conference, like I said, there's so, I only got to share bits and pieces, but as you can see, there's, there's way more of the storyline. Like, even right down to this last 40 days, Part of what launched us into it is I felt like we were supposed to do 40 days. And this is my prayer to the Lord. This is a specific friend that I have. I said, God, if this is you, it's a lot of work. And if it's you, will you give a dream to so-and-so to confirm? Wow. The person emails me the next day and says, I had a dream. And you were walking with three Johns. Wow. Now, I just shared with you guys my, my life story. Jonathan Edwards... John Winthrop, the first governor, and John Armott have been like the Johns that have defined what I feel like we're laboring for in Boston and New England. And basically from that, it was confirmed that we should do the 40 days. But doing the 40 days, young people were coming here from Kansas City, from other places, that really didn't have the same, I guess I'll say prophetic reservoir for like the past five years of understanding history of New England and what God's spoken. But I sat in that prayer room listening to young people Pray the prayers that I've been carrying for five, ten years. Now that can only happen by the Spirit of God. Someone can't come from the other side of the country and start to pray something in the place of prayer that's what we've been laboring for here day and night and even giving utterance to, but yet they have the same exact language 
Only God can do that. Like, only God can do that. Why don't you guys stand to your feet? We're just going to close out with prayer. God, we just thank you for the way that you have supernaturally guided the way that you have supernaturally provided, the way that you have supernaturally spoken and confirmed to our hearts. God, we thank you for the way that you have emboldened us with vision and with faith, God, that what you have spoken, Lord, that the dreams of our fathers, Lord, the dreams of Jonathan Winthrop, Lord, as he was aboard the Arabella, that we would be a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples. Lord, the dream that was in Jonathan Edwards' heart Lord, of an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. God, even the dream of John Armott, Lord, that even as he declared that our, our fathers before us had dreams of missions and, and preaching the gospel, dreams that were not realized, but even as he declared that we will see the dreams of our fathers realized in our generation, God, we ask, Lord, even now, God, would you ruin us with higher vision? Would you ruin us with greater vision, oh God? Lord, we ask that we would be those, God, that not only join the parade of history, but lead the parade of history. God, of that which you desire to birth from Boston and New England. God, even now, God, raise up sons and daughters that partner with you in the place of prayer. I just want to say to you, for some of you, you think, how do I lead the parade of history? I am going to tell you it begins in the place of prayer, of laying down your life in intercession and getting the dreams of God's heart, that your life would become a womb for the dreams of God's heart. That may be for children and orphans. That could look like anything. But it begins by simply saying, God, give me the dreams of your heart. Lord, give me the passions of your heart. And then he supernaturally opens doors and leads us and guides us. God, I thank you that you even call us, Lord, into territory that is uncharted. Lord, I ask, God, that you even put within each one of us in here, God, a yearning and a longing that even as it was said of the Moravians, that they, they changed the face that they changed the expression of Christianity in one generation. Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would put that kind of urgency, that kind of longing in your sons and your daughters that are here, God. Lord, I ask, God, that even as it was said of Sarah, that she had strength to conceive because she judged you as faithful. Lord, I ask, Lord, even right now, Lord, over every individual life, God, that has even looked at the difficulty or even the impossibility of how you will move them into destiny or how you will move them into prophetic promise. Lord, we silence the mind of reason. And God, in its place, God, we say we judge you as faithful. We judge you as faithful, Father that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything we could ask or imagine. So God, even now, we just speak an increase of faith in the name of Jesus, an impartation of supernatural faith in the name of Jesus, that which is beyond reason, that which is beyond the hand of man, that which is beyond even human calculation. 
supernatural exchange. God, we say, Lord, we don't want to read the accounts of the God of the Bible, but God, we want a living exchange with the God of the Bible. So God, we say, enter into our ordinary God. Enter into our mundane. Lord, enter into our boring. Lord, enter into our lowliness, God. Come and invade it with your supernatural presence. The fullness of who you are. We're going to go ahead and close out. I want to be sensitive to time. I know that there's people that need to leave, but if there's anybody that specifically does want prayer before you go, just the prayer of agreement or even uh, to pray for an increase of faith, I'd be happy to pray with you. So Will's just going to continue playing. Um, and if anybody wants prayer, just come forward. And then for those of you that need to go, you are dismissed. And we love you. We appreciate you. We love praying with you. So come pray with us during the week. Everybody knows the prayer schedule. I'm sure of it. If not, there's some out on the hallway. Love you.
I love you. Oh no, I got to record. It didn't matter. You know? Oh. <laughs> okay. I was like, can we watch the game right now? <laughs> hey, we can. They're telling. They're. It's the first time ever. Oh, they're, streaming it. they're streaming it online. Yeah. He asked me to bring That's a laptop. That's the first time you're streaming it online. Let's put it on. Legal. Let's go. Come on. Legally. Okay. Someone Legally. Legally. That makes sense. <laughs> well, oh, I don't know how people have done it before. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah. I don't know I why somebody. Can't, can't, well, all the kids in the house of parents, there's no TV here, used to go down to the local pub to watch the games. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Um, Probably uh, tavern. The tavern. <laughs> they would. I don't know. They love that place. I feel like the tavern's so berated, man. Yeah, I do too. so that we don't have to cross the street with the kids yeah, again. Absolutely. Oh, there it is. Popping out. It's probably just when Abram had his, like when he would run. Like he was fine, but it was like when he would run. That he would yeah. So hard. Everybody upstairs is really sick. Jordan was like, I think she was like, huh? Did you guys get my messages when we were driving down late? I can't even get my voicemails, which is really sad. Really? I have to take my phone. My phone has problems. Real problems. No, it has like a, I didn't put a password on my phone. It's not a password. So I can't get my voicemail. Oh, okay. Did you leave a voicemail? I left them on both. I was like, sh we ran into, so we were at my mom's and Wesley was going to Brazil for six months. So oh, cool. it was kind of like a family. But then something came up at the end. It kind of trickled in. It's a half hour past we want to leave. So, but everything's everything's fine. But you know, it's just Is like, Wes hey, okay? obviously you guys can handle it. But I'm so you know, I'm not gonna be there for. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, Wes is okay. It was my nephew. Right. Is he not okay? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
No, he's yeah. just transitioned in middle yeah. school, yeah. and this girl that was his real close friend, no they got in a fight, but she's no other alliances. He got kids, kids yeah. all the whole school. Yeah. 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 Calling yeah. him like a fool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, four little in his long hand. Yeah, we're gonna go home and eat, okay? Worst, the worst. I'm thinking twelve-year-old kids saying the things that are saying. And he's just like the sweetest kid too. Like he's not like he. So he's crying. I mean, he's trying to want to be popular. So we just were kind of. I was like, I'm gonna go beat him up. <laughs> no, I'm thinking. I, I was just, I was almost like, how do we make him look cooler? Pick <laughs> you know, him up in my pickup. Yeah. You know, Timmy's like, no, I don't know. We just. He's he's been having words over his life since he was like six months. I mean, this kid is just. Been Yeah. Because I want to see it. Yeah. Okay. So I'll email you. 